Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Okay, let me introduce the, the indemitable John Ingram. I think everybody knows John. Uh, he's been doing the Knowledge Nuggets, as I said, very popular, has his own following, and he is going to be joining us today basically to help me. Tammy is doing, a, she's actually had to do two cases in two different hospitals. As I said, we've been very, very, very busy. Um, and the ECMO, of course, is so high resource utilizing that it's been, uh, it's a real challenge. So I'm here in the studio by myself. I was feeling really weak about this whole thing. So I called John and said, John, is there any way you can help me? And John is always willing to do that. So Welcome to the program, John, and thank you so much for helping me today so I don't have to try to do this all by myself. I can't, I can't hear him. Oh, you're muted. Okay, there we go. So, uh, there you go. The wonders of live, of live broadcasting, huh? So, uh, yeah, Joe, I mean, you can't do all the heavy lifting on your own, right? You got to have a little help once in a while. <laughs> I'm telling you, I need a lot of help a lot of times. And of course, you know, without, you know, and I don't mean to, uh, to be, um, to be, uh, 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 what's, I'm not sure what the word, I'm, you know, I find myself looking for words a lot lately, and I think I need to start taking Prevagen. Uh, but I don't want to say this gratuitously, but, you know, without Magic and without David, um, you know, this program would, I don't know what it would look like, but I think it would be disastrous. So I have to also give compliments to them. You, Tammy, uh, everybody that calls in, uh, 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 what's it, Jeff Campbell and Eric Hunley, you know, who recently won stuff that I sent. Uh, I yep. sent a bunch of T-shirts and uh, caps to the Netherlands recently, so they haven't received it yet. We're tracking it. takes a long time for it to get there, somebody that had called in. And so I'm really excited. You know, I think that we're doing a lot of really neat stuff, John, and I can't thank all of you enough. Yeah, we're starting to have uh, peripheral contributors, people that, you know, don't necessarily feel comfortable in front of the camera, but like, but like my friend there, Alan uh, Klima, who, who basically uh, just decided to do something for the perfusion community and yeah. designed these really cool hats and shirts, and he sent you a whole box of them, uh, you know, without charge, and said, hey, you know, I, I don't want to make any money, I just want to promote the field and, and promote goodwill, and, and here you go, you know, so we take anybody who wants to... You know, we take all comers. Somebody wants to come and talk or be on part of the panel or just phone in or, or come once and try it. I mean, it's all good. We're all we're all learning here. We're not here to teach anybody anything. We're here to learn just as much, right, Joe? <laughs> well, no, I think we're no, I, I I think we're here to teach people things. We have a lot of experience, but just because we're here to teach people doesn't mean we can't also learn. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what, what I, you really <laughs> meant to say. Yeah, we, no, we actually are here to teach people things. I think that is our purpose. You you were searching for words. I'm now searching for, for thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Well, I'll share some of my privileges with you. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. as I said, this is, uh, for me, um, kind of a, uh, a, a fun presentation. Um, and, you know, you'll understand as we move forward as to why I feel it has such incredible gravity. So let's go ahead and throw my slides up and we'll just go from here. So my presentation is Vino Venus ECMO Validating RESP and Preserve. And these are scores, and I'm going to go over all of that for you, with you. 
um, the perfusionist role in COVID-19. So it's sort of and the perfusionist role in COVID-19. Uh, Tammy helped me a great deal with this presentation, so I want to make sure that I give uh, her her uh, uh, recognition for that. And uh, neither myself nor Tammy, and I'm confident neither John uh, nor John would have any disclosures in regards to this uh, presentation. So the use of ECMO for uh, uh, respiratory failure really became in vogue and much more recognized as a uh, as a therapeutic modality back in uh, 2009 with the publication of the CESAR trial. And if you remember, we had the H1N1 uh, pandemic, and uh, we had a lot of patients who were suffering from respiratory failure. And these guys, Peek and colleagues, put together a, uh, a, a, a paper on the efficacy and economic assessment of conventional ventilatory support versus ECMO for severe adult respiratory failure, um, or ARDS, and it was a multi-center randomized controlled trial, and it showed very favorable outcomes. So this is really the launching point. Now, we can argue the, the, the validity of the CESAR trial all you want, and there are some that look at it and say it was a very poorly done trial, and there's other people that swear by it, uh, and I'm not actually here to debate this either way. My only point is that this trial is what showed venovenous ECMO had the ability to provide the environment, oxygenation, and time for patients to recover from this severe uh, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome and respiratory failure. The RESP score came later, and we're going to go over the RESP score, so I'm actually going to click on this, and it will go ahead and open it up. So the RESP score was developed by ELSO and the Department of Intensive Care at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And the RESP score numbers, so if you look at this, this uh, 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 tool they have, in the top left, of course, you have information about it with the author, primary author being Schmidt. Uh, when you look at the top right, that's the patient's RESP score. When you look at the left, you have your graph, which is going to give you your confidence interval of 95 and 99%. And then on the bottom right, uh, the larger of the, uh, the sections, you have your inputs. So if I say this patient is greater than 60 years, 60 or greater in age, you see that just off of that one piece of information, you have a rest score. You see it over here on the left. And let's see, will this work? Oh, that won't work. I can't write on this. Yeah, so you'll see the rest score with the 90, with your confidence interval section. If I change that to a patient of 50 to 59, you see that their survival actually improves. And if we have an 18 to 49 year old, it's even more improved. If we take that same patient that's 18 to 49 and we make them immunocompromised, 
you see their rest score in the top right goes to minus two from a zero. And you saw on the bottom left how their score shifted to a lower survival. If we take that away, you'll see their score goes back to zero. And basically they have between a 40 and 60% chance of survival just based on their age. If they were on mechanical ventilation for less than 48 hours, you see their actual survival has improved dramatically. Okay, because we're giving it more information. Now it can kind of predict. We just did age to show you how everything moved around. If it was 48 hours to seven days, you see that your rest score went down to one. So let me go back to that. You see the rest score is three, and you see where your survival range is. Now you see the rest score is one, and you see your survival. And if it's greater than seven days on ECMO prior to, I mean, on mechanical ventilation prior to ECMO, you see that your survival gets a little worse and your rest score goes to zero. If it is a uh, other acute respiratory diagnosis, you see that kind of bumps you up a little bit. You have rest score of one. And I'm going to tell you right now, immunocompromised, watch that. It goes down, see, and then back up. So that's actually a two-point change. If you have central nervous dysfunction, you can see that that makes a huge difference. You go all the way to a minus six. If you have a non-pulmonary infection, an associated non-pulmonary infection, you see that your score gets a little worse. If you were on neuromuscular blockades prior to ECMO, you actually have a better chance of survival. That's how critically important this is. If you used nitrous oxide, however, before use of ECMO, you see your score actually goes down a little bit. If you needed a bicarb infusion, it goes down a little more. If you had cardiac arrest, it goes down a little more. You notice now it's a negative number. If your PaCO2 was greater or equal, equal to or greater than 75, it makes you down to minus four. And if your peak inspiratory pressures are equal or greater than 42, you're all the way down to a minus five. So if you take those same issues, the same situation, and just make the person a little older, it goes all the way to a minus seven, and you see the, the, the correlated survival also went down. And if they're equal or greater than 60 years old, your survival goes down, goes way down from there. And again, your 95 and 99% uh, confidence intervals are there. So. Uh, keep that in mind, but you're a minus eight. So that's how the RESP score works. It's a, the more negative your number or the lower your number, the lower your chances of survival. And this is very easy to find uh, on your, um, uh, on the website. So it's, you could look it up, RESP score, and it'll show right up. Now, in contrast to that, and actually done a little bit, if you look at this, this was done in 2014. In 2013, the same author, this is Schmidt, did the preserve score, and this was done in, in, in France. The preserve mortality risk score and analysis of long-term outcomes after extracorporeal oxygenation for severe ARDS. And this is actually a positive number. So the higher, the lower your rest score, the worse it is. The higher your preserve score, 
the worse it is. So it's completely opposite, okay? So if you take a patient, and I can say that let's go ahead and make our patient between 45 and 55, you see that I can put a 2. This is very strange. The patient with a body mass index of greater than 30, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, you is actually considered an improved opportunity for survival. So we're going to take that minus 2 and subtract it, and we're back to 0. And then if you take peep of less than 10, you can add 2. And if you have plateau pressures greater than 30, which we frequently do, we add 2. So this person's RESP score is going to be 4, right? So keep that in mind. Now, focusing back, let me go ahead and erase that. So focusing back on this right here, this BMI greater than 30 is actually a positive thing. Remember, the higher your number in, in preserve, the worse it is, opposite of rest. So you're subtracting two for these larger patients. This is actually predicated on uh, citation number 46 from the original paper that was written for, that, that uh, published for Preserve. Notably, and I'll go ahead and read it to you from here, notably BMI greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared was associated with better outcomes independently of pre-ECMO peak plateau and peak. So peak pressures, plateau pressures and peak. Although it has frequently been reported that obese patients have better ICU outcomes than normal weight patients, 46, this observation might suggest that plateau pressures might not be a valid surrogate of transpulmonary pressure in obese patients. For obvious reasons, um, uh, therefore, uh, and uh, in obese patients, and therefore might not necessarily mean more severe respiratory failure because their chest wall elastance is higher than normal reference values. So obese patients, and, and again, it's predicated on citation number 46, and their thought is, well, wait a minute, this increase in mass, especially the big belly that's pushing up on the diaphragm, all these various factors, may not actually, we have these high plateau pressures or peak pressures, uh, either one, and it may not be related to a loss of lung uh, compliance. It's actually due to this additional weight that these patients have and applying a pressure to the thoracic cavity for expansion and uh, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, uh, ventilator. So keep that in mind. And to sort of validate this, and I took this, kept going down the rabbit hole with this, this is the actual article. This is reference 46. Lower short and long-term mortality associated with overweight and obesity in a large cohort study of adult intensive care patients. Excellent study. So they excluded neonates and children. They excluded adults 
uh, without a hospital ID or clinical data. That was 711 of them. They removed 2,000 adults, plus or minus, without weight data from the primary analysis, and they ended up with 16,812 as an N. That's a big number. And indeed, if you look over here at this graph, you can see that down here, underweight is red. They fare very poorly. Over here is normal weight, and that's this line right here. They do a little better than underweight. And then the remaining numbers are overweight and obese, green and uh, dashed green and dashed blue. And you can see here that their outcomes in 30 days was much improved from underweight or from normal weight. And that's very interesting. But the problem with that is these aren't ECMO patients, nor are they ARDS patients. These are just ICU patients. So the preserve score is predicated on patients who are in the ICU for all kinds of things, but ARDS and, and, and on ECMO. So you have to take that with a serious, you know, you really got to look at that very critically and consider whether or not you really should be subtracting two points from that score uh, because of uh, the BMI being greater than 30. I can tell you from experience that BMI is greater than 30. Certainly BMI is greater than 40. If they're greater than 40, they are definitely not doing better than patients that have a BMI of 28. I can assure you of that just from my own eyeballs. And we'll Joe, talk a little about uh, that. Joe, you want to have a little uh, conversation briefly about this? As, Absolutely. As to, why, as to why you think and, and why, why people might think this is, this is perhaps the case. I think we had a perf web several backwards. A little bit of this conversation came up about obese people are doing better actually after cardiac surgery, not necessarily ECMO. And what we found out was that, you know, obesity uh, is a hyper is an inflammatory state in and of itself. These people mm -hmm. live in a, in a mild to elevated inflammatory state. And what happens is they're hypercoagulable, and therefore they have less blood loss in the ICU and require less blood transfusions. And that in and of itself is a big, uh, you know, complicating mm -hmm. factor. And I think also, and uh, also I think that their blood volume is probably larger, and therefore their hemodilutional factors are less. And again, they require less blood product. I think we need to be clear to our audience to not go out and attempt to be overweight and obese and think that you're somehow medically going to benefit. I think there's a whole slew of negatives that would counteract some of that um, that we were talking about in the previous purpose. What are your thoughts? No, I, I completely agree with you, but I think there's a, a point, right? I think there's the traditional well-nourished male or female that when we say well-nourished, probably means they're carrying a little extra weight with them. Then there's the morbidly obese patient who is, you know, 500 pounds and just, or 400 pounds and just fat, period. Um, and then there's the big person, like a, a lineman uh, for an NFL team who's in enor an enormous person. They look like they're fat but they're not really, they're fat, but they're not that fat. They're very marbled in their muscle. Um, and those people, I think, are just a completely different category. And then you have the, 
you know, the malnourished, undernourished, cachectic person, you know, on the far end, the extreme. Um, certainly, I think when you look at these people, the malnourished uh, or undernourished people tend to have hypoalbuminemia, and there's all kinds of third spacing problems and volume issues. And you're right, their total blood volume is low, so the dilutional impact of the pump is much higher, um, and they have no reserve. So I definitely think that a patient who is a, uh, a fairly decent physiologic specimen, for example, our very first COVID ECMO that we did, who walked out of the hospital, uh, who was a police officer, who was, you know, doing at least some, you know, exercise. They weren't necessarily working out like they are now. Uh, but they were doing something, um, and, and they did very well, but they were treated very early, and we can talk more about that as we move forward. But if you take a person who, again, is morbidly obese, you can't ventilate them. Uh, cannulation is challenging at best. Getting it positioned in the right place and keeping it there, being able to turn that patient, uh, skin breakdown, secondary infections, I think that's an extreme and then you have the opposite of people who have zero reserve because they're, you know, just malnourished and they're sick, sickly. So I, I think there's a lot of factors involved. And uh, I'm going to talk more about that as we move forward with our own experience. But I agree with you 100%. You want to add to any of that? Yeah, I think the three, there's three factors, and there may be more. I'm not an expert on uh on obesity, but you have you have an increased blood volume, which is exposed to less hemodilution, a less an effect of a hemodilution. Then you have a hyperinflammatory state, mild hyperinflammatory state, which causes them to be hypercoagulable. So in a regular case, it's been documented that they bleed less out of their chest tubes post cardiopulmonary bypass. And the third thing may be when you're just talking about nutrition is obviously somebody who's carrying a lot a lot of extra weight. What is, what is fat, essentially? Yeah, well, it's an energy store. That's what your body's doing. It's storing energy exactly. for a day when you, you don't have uh, food to eat. So these people have the tolerance to be, you know, um, uh, without, you know, sometimes really you, you go, if, you, if it's not an emergency case, you have to be, you know, NPO uh, after midnight. So maybe you didn't eat the day before. Then you end up don't getting nutrition maybe for another day or two. So you have like three days there maybe or uh, so without any nutrition. Well, mm -hmm. a heavyweight person has got this enormous energy store they can draw from, and a, and a fit person doesn't have that. So right. perhaps those three thoughts come to my mind as to why somebody with an extra weight, you know, could do better. Now, ECMO, I can tell you, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know that all those are an advantage a lot of times. Yeah, well, we're going to see, because I've got some interesting caveats. But I will add a caveat to what you just said. I think there's well-nourished, somewhat overweight, obese, BMI 30 to 35-ish, and then there's a BMI of 60. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're the same thing. Um, so I think you can be, I think that, that depending on what you're going to have done, cardiac surgery, easy chip shot, valve replacement, whatever it is, versus a, uh, a long-term need for either total respiratory support or circulatory support in those patients. But anyway, let's go ahead and uh, finish, go to the next slides. So in preserve, you saw the rest. We're going to go over these numbers. So as I said, that patient that we did 
ended up with a preserved score of four, if you remember, and that's here. And that basically, this goes all the way out to 180 days. And in that particular case, their survival is just under 80%, so somewhere around 78%. With a preserved score of five to six, you see that their six-month survival is down to around 58% or so, and if their preserved score was seven or greater, you see that their six-month survival is down under 20%. So, you know, it's easy to see that initially you have pretty decent outcomes, but then as time goes on at six months, and historically we really don't look at that, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's pretty important. So you may have at 30 days, you survived over here at 80%, a little over 80%, but as you track that out, it goes down to, you know, somewhere around, it looks like about 55 to 58% survival. So a pretty big difference from 30 days to 180 days. And then you have this, which confounds even more of all of this discussion. Here is an 18-year-old survivor. Now, the key information here, the key part of this demographic is 18 years old, okay? Can't take that, you, that's, that's a very key th element. Um, but with a body mass index of 73.9, it is the largest person, uh, and this was uh, uh, Bavita, Bavita, uh, and colleagues who wrote this. I'm not exactly sure where it was from, but it was published in Critical Care Explorations by the Society of Critical Care Medicine um, very recently. And it's the largest uh, COVID uh, with ECMO or ECMO for COVID survivor that's known. And they do talk about the patient being discharged to home after a rather protracted uh, hospital course, both a long ECMO run and a long hospital course before going home, and they didn't go home without a lot of care and uh, essentially unscathed. I don't know how that patient is doing now, uh, but certainly this was a real challenge, and I'm sure that it was a very emotional decision for the clinicians that made the decision to put this patient on ECMO because a BMI of 73.9 is very, very, very large. And uh, I have no doubt that this was a real challenge. I suggest you read the article because you can see all of the various things that happened to this patient as their hospital course went on. And I think these guys did an incredible job at being able to uh, get him through this. Uh, but at the same time, we have to look at that 180 days out and really understand what did we do? Um, and that is a, uh, a deep, very deep ethical dilemma that we have all been facing for about a year. And I'm not sure where I fall on this. Uh, I have con conflict in myself with what to do uh, with some of these patients and what I think is right and what may not be right. I'm, I'm, of course, none of us have a crystal ball, but we can discuss that a little further uh, as we move along. In, uh, another, in fact, going back to preserve, and this is some very interesting data. 
So in this column here, you see these are alive. This is just their total patients. This is alive, and this is dead in preserved. BMI that was 29 versus 26, so a little higher BMI seemed to have better outcomes, and this was statistically significant. You also have patients who had previous H1N1 infection, and actually, uh, 36% of them did, 30% uh, of them were alive, 6% of them uh, were non-survivors. You also notice here, again, same exact setup, this is just the second part of that same chart, alive, dead, you have 32% were alive with plateau pressures of 32 versus 34, so lower plateau pressures seem to make a difference and statistically significant. Hospital admission to ECMO initiation, you'll see that you have a much better chance, uh, actually five days, please forgive me, five days in the alive, 13 days in the dead, statistically significant. So shorter time from hospital admission to ECMO initiation, shorter time from ICU admission to ECMO initiation makes a big difference in whether you're in the alive or dead section, and that's all statistically significant. And days of mechanical ventilation, shorter days versus longer days, made a statistical difference in whether or not you were alive or dead. So, plateau pressure is lower, time from hospitalization to ECMO initiation, lower is better, time from ICU admission to ECMO initiation, lower is better, days on mechanical ventilation to ECMO, lower day, uh, less days is better. So, lower is better. Keep that stuff in mind. This is an important chart. Now, Brunei, also in France, Forgive me, let me turn this off. Brunei from France took the RESP and PRESERVE scores, him and his colleagues, and decided they wanted to do an external validation of these, these two scores, both RESP and PRESERVE. And this is very important at what they came up with. So if you look here, this is RESP done by Schmidt, okay, and Preserva Schmidt as well. Class 1, they had a 92% survival. In the cohort from Brunei, they didn't have any patients that met Class 1. In Class 2, RESP had a 76% survival. In their cohort, Brunei, they only had a 50% survival. Class 3 was 57% in RESP versus 43% in the Brunei, in, their, in the uh, uh, cohort uh, from them. Class 4, 33% versus 20. And Class 5, 18% survival in RESP, 50% survival in the uh, uh, Brunei study. Now, it's important to note and point out, look at the total number of cases, 164 versus 0, 563 versus 6, 
1033 verses 14, 449 verses 5, and 146 verses 2. So clearly rest has a much larger number. But keep in mind, it's coming from all over the world. This was a single center looking to validate the score to their actual in, uh, outcomes. So it's very important to point both of those things out. I don't think the lower numbers invalidates it because, again, they're doing a validation based on a prediction from that score. When you go to preserve, 97% survival in class one versus 58%, and much closer numbers, 34 to 12. 79% survival for class two in preserve in their cohort, 54%. Class three, 54 versus 57, a little bit better. And class four was 16% versus zero. So what they went on to say, and this is very, very important. This comes directly out of, the, out of that paper, and if, you, if, I, if you'll permit me to read it. The selection of patients with severe ARDS most likely to benefit from ECBO remains a difficult challenge for physicians, clinicians, practitioners. Based on large retrospective observational cohorts, two predictive mortality scores have been developed, the preserve score and the rest score both having good performance in helping physicians to select the most appropriate candidates for ECBO. That is the current knowledge. What did this paper, in their words, contribute to our knowledge? And this is the most important part. In comparison with original cohorts, we report poor performance of these scores to predict death in subjects with ARDS receiving ECMO with different case mixes. Therefore, this study suggests that great caution is warranted when considering these scoring systems, meaning RESP and PRESERVE, to individually select patients with ARDS for ECMO. You gotta use your clinical judgment. The scoring may be a good guide, but in the validation of those scores, my own experience using those scores, that I, don't, I, I can appreciate what Brunet and his colleagues saw when they used these scores in their own patient population and then compared the predicted outcomes to their actual outcomes. John, do you want to add anything? Oh, wait, one second before you take it down. COVID sucks. People don't, but there are exceptions. Okay, so you don't suck, though, John. Yeah, you know, um, the, um, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that, Joe. The, the, the large, large trial, multi-center trial uh, gives those numbers they put you in the ballpark, but, but remember one big thing that comes to my mind is that you can walk, and you see this there in, in Houston, I'm sure, with the number of centers that are doing ECMO that you're exposed to. The CCM approach is different. The critical care medicine pro approach is different. 
hospital to hospital. The surgical cannulation approach is different hospital to hospital. The nursing care, when I'm talking about ECMO now, because ECMO is so uh, multidisciplinary, intense, and people's uh, idea of, of, you know, how many meds they're on and, and how much to take off. Anticoagulation strategy. Anticoagulation right. strategy. Are you measuring recirculation? Yeah. Are you measuring oxygenator blood volume? Are you uh, paralyzing the patient? Are you waking the patients up? Are you trying to mobilize and exercise these people? Are you, what's your target hematocrit? Are you allowing for, you know, much more anemia than I'm comfortable with? Or are you very liberal in your transfusion? You know, and how much trolley is associated with transfusions? And I mean, the list goes on and on. Did they develop a pneumo? Did you put a chest tube in? Did you hit an intercostal? And you're anticoagulated. Now, what are you going to do? You're bleeding severely. Um, trauma to the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, putting different uh, tubes down. We're dealing with that right now. And we held the anticoagulation. It was at a hospital where we aren't doing minimal anticoagulation strategy, non-unfractionated non heparin or angiomax. Um, and we went ahead and held the anticoagulation for six hours because she was bleeding so profusely from her oro and nasopharynx area. And then she had a big giant left-sided effusion, pleural effusion, and we tapped it and we got out thick, really thick uh, blood. And it was about 900 to 1100 cc's. So, you know, there's a lot that goes on with these patients. And this is a relatively, I mean, she's a little overweight, but not bad. She's unfortunately not a transplant candidate, though we're, they're trying to get her on a transplant list. Um, she's from California, and she's 40 years old. She just moved out here. She got COVID, and uh, she's in the ICU uh, in a lot of trouble. But we did hold her sedation, and she did wake up, and she did follow singular commands. So, you know. Uh, we got to do we got to do everything we can to help her. She doesn't have a pneumo yet, so hopefully she won't develop one, and we can actually uh, get her, you know, through ECMO. But even getting her through the ECMO and transition to just mechanical ventilation is only the beginning of the struggle. Because again, you got to get the patient extubation. She's on trait collar now, but you got to get her to where she's no longer dependent on the vent or oxygen keep her from going into multi-organ failure. Her kidneys are still working, but her BUN was elevated. Her liver's still working, but her enzymes were bumping up a little bit. Uh, that might be secondary to the ECMO. It might be secondary to some other, you know, issue going on with her that is yet to be identified. But, you know, there's a lot that goes on with these people. Yeah, I mean, that, that one graph you put up there, um, when you showed the, uh, you know, when you highlighted in red there, and the, the one thing that sticks out is on the statistics there where, where the average me, me, um, mechanical ventilation days mean was three and the other one was seven. Yes, uh, made a big difference know, in survival. I know there's other factors there that are, that are significant, but that one hits it out of the park. You know, you, you can't have uh, less than, you know, the three, if you could double three, you still didn't reach seven on the other one. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's a pretty big difference. And... Uh, that that uh, that that stood out to me as, as a pretty big, you know, probably the biggest one. But there's so many things, and that's why you take this one uh, group there. You're you're talking about trying to compare their experience with the 
with the big numbers, and you know they kind of they were kind of in the ballpark, and the trends of it were were, were there on, on some of them, but um, mm -hmm. everything could be different. The care from A to Z could have been different than than any number of the patients that they were comparing well, to. You know? you know that's true, John, but you can't. You know, I see your point, and I think your point is very valid. But when you're looking at a predicted score of 76%, this patient should do great. But mm -hmm. then you take, and that's from this multi-center international database, and you have that high, high number, you know, end that you're comparing it to, and all these other factors that you just articulated very clearly, but then you look at your center, and ours is 46, 50%, that's a huge difference from 76%. Yeah. So, you know, are we really, or, or worse, you know, you're even lower than that. So your ability to predict survival from these scores has to be taken with a lot of skepticism, in my view, even though it's a, it's a starting point, perhaps, but I think you, uh, you can't hang your hat on it and say, this patient, by prediction, has a 76 or a 98% chance of survival with this, we have to do it. Uh, because I don't think you can really say that. Yeah, I, I hope that uh, centers that, that see themselves at, you know, 20, 30% below what seems to be the, 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 you know, what everybody else is doing or a large average of what everybody else is doing. If they'll reach out to, to you know, find a center that, that is doing those numbers and reach out and, and have their, their ECMO leaders reach out to them or maybe go spend a day or two or three at that center and try to dig up you know, what it is they could do different you know, and try to improve that. I think we all have to learn from each other because if we all have to make the same mistakes over and over to get to the same point, we're going to be at this an awful long time. Yeah, well, I can tell you this. RESP and PRESERVE are no way comparable to the detail and the, 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 I'll say accuracy, but specificity of the STS mortality risk score for cardiac surgery. That's mm -hmm. as comprehensive as it gets. Mm -hmm. We're nowhere near having that level of sophistication in either of those scores. So I think that, that's, that, that is my, my takeaway message is that those scores are good scores to have, to know, to know how to do them, to know what's important, to look at all of this data, but you have to uh, look at it with some level of, of skepticism and ask yourself, is this really the right patient for us to do this to, and what are they going to look like in 180 days, not in, 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 in 15 minutes, because we put them on ECMO and everyone looks better in the short term. And, and that other graph you had that showed uh, the 180 days graph that you're talking about. Preserve. If, if, mm -hmm. if, yeah, if you look back at day 20, I know you highlighted, you think you circled day 30, but if you look right at day 20, you'll see that almost every one of those jumps down. There's Big like drop. a waterfall drop off mm -hmm. right about day 20. And we have a lot of conversations at our hospital about somebody who's on ECMO for about 21 days. Are they showing signs of improvement? And certainly at 30 days, we give the COVID patients you know, you got to get a little longer. But if you're not seeing any improvement, hardly at all, and, and, and you know, the, the conversations need to start with the family. I think we, we do every two weeks a very serious conversation. Hey, 
We've been 14 days on ECMO. We have not seen any improvement. I think it would be better if it was seven days at most places because by the end of 30 days, the family has now heard for four weeks in a row, there has been no improvement. And 30 days for a young person is not a long time to get better from a serious disease, but it's getting to be a long time on ECMO. You know, you're getting up there. You are. And, you know, and as I said, it's a very, uh, it's a very difficult, uh, it's a very difficult situation because these patients are young. They're, um, you know, they, they have young children at home or they have, you know, they don't have children yet. They have parents, uh, spouses. It's, uh, it's very emotional. And I understand that. Uh, I think that uh, we definitely have to give people an opportunity. Um, but you also have to consider what is going to be their health-related quality of life after this is over. If they, sur if they survive, what will that actually look like? And, you know, we're not in the business. We're in the business to save people. We're in the business to help people. Uh, but, you know, there are fates worse than death, I mean, at the end of the day. And I think we, these are ethical dilemmas that I don't think I can solve. And frankly, I'm, I, I can have an opinion, but I am very glad I don't have to make those decisions in a, at a moment, in a moment, in a vacuum. I'm able to sit here and pontificate it in the comfort of an air-conditioned studio, not standing in front of somebody's spouse, children, or parents. So, you know, it's it's very tough. But we let's 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 move on. I, I think I've got some interesting information. So, the the way I feel we sort of need to think about this is that there are you got the green light. There are clear indications for ECMO. You have a red light. That is, it is clearly not indicated. But you have the yellow light, which is, let's see, why won't it work? Do I have to do this? Yeah. Which is where your clinical judgment comes in. And the yellow light is that area is much bigger than the green light or the red light. So you spend a lot of time in the yellow zone. So when somebody's contemplating putting somebody on ECMO, this is what I want you to think about. You can see there are red lights blinking. You can see that there is a barricade on both sides of the street. You can see here, and it, I can't really, you can't read it, it's a little fuzzy, but it says, do not stop on tracks. So I'll play the video, but this is the image I want you to consider when people start talking about putting people on ECMO for, AR, for COVID-associated ARDS. Okay, let's think about this, whether we should do this. This is where you should be stopping and thinking. I know y'all saw it coming from a mile away, but you really have to take a moment, notwithstanding the patient may be coding at the moment. Of course, that's a completely different thing. Oh, here is the image from the actual train. Well, there goes the car. So think about it. I think that's kind of where I'm at with this is 
you know, you can't have a patient that's been on the floor for 12 days struggling, becomes a rapid, comes to the unit, gets intubated, lingers around on the in the unit for another three or four days or five days on the ventilator, finally is just deoxygenated and CO2 is through the roof and they can't ventilate the patient anymore at all. And now we're going to put the patient on ECMO. I can, I can predict, I, I don't need the rest score nor the preserve score to predict that outcome for you because I've seen it so many times. So in uh, 2020, based on what's going on, ELSO developed a consensus document. This is very important. We need to see this. And I highlighted some of the various different things, but they recommend against initiation of ECMO before maximizing traditional therapies for acute respiratory distress syndrome, in particular prone positioning. Now, this is the consensus statement. I don't completely agree with it. I kind of agree with it. Don't completely agree with it because I think if you follow this to its letter, so to speak, versus its intent, which is to try and preserve resources for the most survivable of the patients, um, and you do try all of these things and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, you get farther and farther and farther away from what is the window of being able to protect the lung, and the lung becomes so injured, so inflamed, so damaged that it becomes irreversible. So I wanted to highlight that. There's a lot of other data in here, but I just wanted to point that out. Again, I highlighted those things that I wanted to, to demonstrate or to talk about today. In terms of veno-arterial ECMO, indications and patient selection criteria for VA ECMO should not deviate from pre-existing guidelines. Timely provision of VA ECMO is recommended before development of multi-organ failure. Well, we all understand that. You have low cardiac output syndrome and you're sitting there on multiple pressors, you know, the out, the, 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 you're gonna go into multi-organ system failure. Consider VA ECMO in selected patients with refractory cardiogenic shock, persistent tissue hypoperfusion, and systolic pressure of less than 90, cardiac index of less than 2.2, while receiving norepi at, at uh, greater than 0.5, and dobutamine at greater than 20. Also, patients requiring VA ECMO support who incidentally test positive for COVID-19, but are not thought to be critically ill due to the virus should be considered for ECMO support in the usual fashion. So you can have a patient who is COVID positive, is, a, is, is someone who is a, an asymptomatic COVID positive from COVID, but had an MI for a different reason and needs mechanical circulatory support. So their COVID diagnosis should not preclude them from that. This is, I've shown this slide multiple times. I want to show it again for the sake of this audience and anyone else that reads this or watches this. And this is an algorithm or a nomogram, whatever you would call it, that tells you 
uh, what to do for various different circumstances. And I'll explain why I bring this up. So if you have refractory hypoxemia, so all of your strategies to ventilate are failing, and you have cardiogenic shock, then you should follow this line down with cardiogenic shock. You have to ask yourself, is the cardiogenic shock due to other heart failure, or is the cardiogenic shock due to hypoxemia? If it's due to other heart failure, venoarterial ECMO or venoarterial venous ECMO is appropriate. But if your cardiogenic shock is due, and I'll follow this down, due to the hypoxemia itself, please don't put that patient on VA ECMO. That patient should go on VV ECMO because the oxygenation will result in the heart function improving. But if you put a patient on VV ECMO that has trashed lungs, but a good heart, you get this problem over here, differential hypoxemia. This is, of course, uh, uh, if you have peripheral cannulation, fem-fem. So your lungs are trashed. You have isolated respiratory failure, but your cardiac function is really good, and you do venoarterial ECMO with femoral arterial return cannulation, you will end up with everything from the diaphragm down, being nice and pink, and the head, and ultimately the heart, the brain being the most sensitive, you're basically going to have a hypoxic brain injury and that patient's not going to survive. The heart will quit, but it'll be long after the brain is toast. So if your respiratory failure is pure respiratory failure, even if you are showing signs of cardiogenic shock, but it's because of the hypoxemia, then you do venovenous ECMO alone and correct whatever cardiogenic shock you have, and you have the patient protected as the heart's contracting and beating normally again. John, any comments about that? Yeah, I, I, I noticed that um, you added the veno arterial venous on that one box, which I love. Yes. Because I love I love VAV ECMO there on the lower left. We could talk about, but yes. But well, I, I didn't think, add it. The authors. Uh, it comes out of the Elso Red Book. Yeah. Right. Um, well, that used to just say. Just VA at one point, did it not, or did it always say the VAV? No, it always it always said that. Oh, okay, I, I missed a note. So, so the I just never mentioned coming, it before. Yeah, it's an old slide, so that's a good slide, though. I love it. the The thing that over the you know years now and all the, the, the almost close to probably getting close to a thousand ECMOs that I've seen, getting up there anyway. You know, I'm beginning to here in the last few months <clears throat> with all the ECMOs that I see. The one of the first things now used to not be the, you know, even in the top five things that would pop into my mind is regardless of VV or VA or VAV, I want to think to myself, what is the oxygen quality of the blood coming out of the left ventricle? Mm -hmm. Whatever we're going to do here, right, Joe? Whatever we're going to do here, what ends up coming out of the left ventricle? Is it going to be oxygenated? 
is it going to be oxygenated enough mm -hmm. by what strategy we're doing? If, if you're doing VV and you still don't end up with enough oxygenated blood coming out of the left ventricle, you're hypoxic, right? Your, best, you're chance of, your best chance for analyzing, uh, 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 for, for being able to infer that, your best choice is the right radial. Now, that can still exclude the coronaries, but likely not. If your right radial is a good saturation, good PO2, more than likely you're getting great oxygenation to the brain and to the heart as well. But your the best ideal would be to have a catheter in the aortic root, just above the aortic valve. I think the saving grace on some of that is that we're offloading the heart with this and the heart ends up working maybe less strenuous, although that doesn't have to be the case. It could be worse if you have AI and you're doing VA. Sure, but there's a lot of people who have heart, you know, uh, from, a, you know, from cardiogenic shock that when you unload them, I've seen it how many times in the operating room, you're on pump, the heart looks like it's beating great, you go to load it and it does terrible. Yeah. So you're on yeah. veno arterial ECMO and you're decreasing preload. And yeah. of course, you know, that's going to provide for the heart having less volume and it may be a little bit better. And you're actually ejecting now where you weren't before or worse, you put an impella in on top of it. You have trash lungs. So you've got a great left ventricular unloading, but everything coming out of the left ventricle is desaturated and everything going up the femoral artery as great. So if you draw your, 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 your systemic, your patient blood gases from the contralateral femoral artery, it looks fantastic. But yeah. your patient is, uh, is still, uh, it still has anoxic brain death. Yeah. The, um, uh, I mean, it's really central to what you're doing is what is the, what is the, uh, oxygen and, and really carbon dioxide level too, but oxygen level content that is coming out of the left ventricle, VV or VA or VAV, what is that number and what is coming out? Because that's what's going, you know, to the coronaries, that's what's going to the heart. So if, you, if you're inadequate on your VV, and you know, Joe, we've done now, we had a few more just this last month where we had VV, VV, you know, yeah. and we had two more where we had two separate cardio helps, one on VV of one style on the same patient and another VV, and we also had a VV and a separate VA on the mm -hmm. same patient because mm -hmm. we could not capture enough either on the VV due to their hyperdynamic, uh, you know, uh, cardiac output. We're not capturing enough or the location of the cannulas. We couldn't eliminate enough mixing or what have you, or they just had so much volume on board too. That's another thing. You have very hypervolemic patients. Mm -hmm. They can have a tremendous uh, cardiac output that's flowing through there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the end of the day, we're doing all these things and we draw a right radial, uh, you know, blood sample and the PO2 is still, you know, in the 50s or 40s mm -hmm. or something. And here mm -hmm. it is. We have all this tremendous effort to oxidation going on mm -hmm. and we're still not getting great, great number on the And on if the right that's side. the number here, that's the number the brain is seeing. Yeah. No well, question about it. So anyway, I'm going to run out of time. So let's, let's, okay. uh, let's go through the rest of these slides. I think we can get through these. I've got a lot of slides, but um, this is also from the ELSO consensus statement. If your PF, PAO2, FIO2, otherwise PF ratio is less than 150, they strongly recommend prone positioning unless contraindicated. And some people are just not compliant with it. They can't do it. Uh, they recommend neuromuscular blockade and appropriate PEEP. 
consider inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, nitric oxide, recruitment maneuvers. If you have any of these, PF ratio less than 60 for greater than six hours, PF ratio less than 50 for greater than three hours, pH of less than 7.2 with a PaCO2 of greater than 80 for greater than six hours, and you have, uh, uh, if it's no, current management. If it's yes, you should uh, look to ECMO. Is there a contraindication? No, then they recommend ECMO. Yes, then obviously do whatever you can. And here, if your PF ratio is equal to or greater than 150, but your pH is less than 7.2 and a PCO2 of greater than 80 for six hours, and uh, if the answer is yes, contraindications to ECMO, no, they recommend ECMO. If no, then obviously current management or if there are contraindications. So another very important slide to use, good guide to help you make the decision, not an absolute help you make the decision. Also, their relative contraindications, which is on the top of this page, age equal to or greater than 65. Now, a relative contraindication for them is a BMI of equal to or greater than 40. I think that's uh, very important because that is in direct conflict to their RESP score or PRESERVE score. So you have to take that again and keep that in mind. The absolute contraindications, which is here, is any contraindication to anticoagulation. I don't really agree with that because we're now doing a lot of these cases, John, and you've helped me a great deal with this, with no anticoagulation, and we're doing it successfully. Inability to accept blood products. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds to me like uh, not inability, but unwillingness to take blood products. And again, I'm not sure that that is a direct contraindication to ECMO, but something to certainly consider if the patient's going to need it. Um, we do cardiac surgery. You, I can't hear you, John. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to myself, actually, but yeah. I'm just thinking, I can't recall us doing, if they're referring to Jehovah Witness patients, for example, I'm trying to recall if we've ever done one. I can't recall one. Mm -hmm. well, we do cardiac surgery on them. You know, and that's pretty risky. Um, in there now, this in this it has to do with with capacity, conventional capacity. You should do so. Capacity exists, and again, this is their consensus statement. You should have judicious patient selection. I think you should always have judicious patient selection. Offer VV VA in selected COVID-19 patients based on usual criteria, offer ECMO for non-COVID indications, and eCPR only in expert centers. I, I don't think you should do ECMO if you're not in an expert center. It's one thing to initiate ECMO and have the cavalry come to get the patient out of there, or the cavalry come and initiate the ECMO and take your patient. But if you're not an expert center, and I'm not sure exactly what qualifies as an expert, but if you've never done ECMO before, you've only done one in three or four years, you shouldn't be trying to start that now. That's my view. 
you want to do an ECMO program, it takes a tremendous amount of planning, organization, training, support. There's a lot of factors involved. It's just not like a dialysis machine. No matter what the manufacturer's representatives try to convince you of. Um, capacity, tier one system is running within expanded capacity. You should triage to, triage to maximize ECMO capacity to outcome. Is outcome 30 days? Is it 180 days? Is it short term? Is there quality of life, health related quality of life questions involved in this? Those are all decisions you have to make and figure out what is survival to you, getting decannulated or leaving the hospital and having a relatively normal existence. So those are the questions you have to ask yourself. And there's a lot of things in between. But you're at expanded capacity triage, VVVA ECMO in younger COVID-19 patients with single organ failure, judicious ECMO use for non-COVID-19 indications. Now, that kind of irritates me. It's their consensus statement, and I like ELSO, but that irritates me. So if you have a need for VV ECMO that, and you don't have COVID, then you're somehow, you know, if you're aspiration pneumonia, those have great outcomes. You should be more judicious. No, I think, I think that non-COVID diagnoses have far better outcomes than COVID does. So why would we restrict that? That doesn't make sense to me. And eCPR should not be offered. I don't agree with that either. In expanded capacity, close to saturation, you should have restrictive ECMO selection criteria. And VA ECMO and eCPR should not be offered. You know, again, I like, I like ELSO. I understand what their reasoning for this is. But if you do a case and the patient's got some RV or LV dysfunction and just needs a little bridge to recovery for a few days in VA ECMO, but you're at capacity or nearing capacity, you're on ex, you know, the, the, the expanded capacity with COVID ECMOs, I, I don't think that patient deserves less. I don't agree with this. I mean, it's, a, it's just as simple as that. Um, in crisis capacity, the system is overwhelmed. ECMO may no longer be appropriate. Concentrate resources to usual care. So your capacity is overwhelmed. ECMO is not feasible in either COVID or non-COVID patients. Triage ICU admissions. Consider ceasing all feudal care to create capacity in the system. Well, I mean, I do agree with that. If you have feudal care, you have feudal care. But again, you know, just because we're at capacity doesn't mean we can't, we have a capacity for the hospital. We have a capacity for ECMO. Certainly we should be, if we're at that level, highly selective. But I can tell you right now, you can, I've been wrong a couple of times where I have been absolutely certain this patient is going to absolutely do great, and they didn't. And I've also been convinced that patient is just simply not going to make it. I don't know why we're doing this. And they've walked out of the hospital. So my predictive skills are very much in question. And 
you know, you, you do that. You have those happen. You have those happen a couple of times, and it really checks you up. And you're not in such a hurry to start making decisions about who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's clear. But there's a lot of gray in there, and uh, I just simply can't really agree with this. I think you got to take care of patients, and if you're overwhelmed and patients could survive without ECMO and you need the room and they're that far gone, you have to accept failure in those patients. But I think if you're highly selective and you have the technology and the patient is already occupying the room, you should at least give them a shot. Maybe not 30 days, 60 days, 80 days, 90 days on ECMO, but a couple of weeks and see if we can turn this around. Um, Elso does have a disclaimer, so keep that in mind. I would suggest you read it because everything that they say has a disclaimer and a, uh, a uh, we're not liable for whatever decisions you make. All of the decisions, their recommendations are based on available evidence and existing best practice guidelines, ethical principles, and expert opinions, but it's a living document, can be changed, and ultimately it is your decision whether to put the patient on ECMO, not on ECMO, or to cease ECMO in, that, in any individual particular patient. So what's our experience? Well, from March 12th of 2020 to March 21 of 2021, we had ECMO in five different hospitals with a majority of them in three, and we had 47 total ECMOs. Now we're at 52, and this is only for COVID. So COVID patients who are diagnosis of COVID, COVID-associated ARDS, pulmonary failure, and on ECMO for that purpose. So we had 47 within that period of time, five hospitals, majority of them in three, and now we're at 52. Uh, but this was only looking at those 47. We had a 20% overall survival. So quite dismal. Survival with a BMI over 40 was 2%. We had no survivors, and by survivors, I mean went home. We had no survivors with a BMI over 45, but one patient who is not in this population had a BMI of 62. He's 35 years old. He was one of those big people I talked about in the very beginning, and he is in renal failure. He is in some element of liver failure, certainly liver uh, dysfunction right now, and but he is awake. He's responsive. He's using um, those little stretch things, resistance bands, uh, to try and exercise himself. A tremendous will to live. He's on a trade collar. Um, and uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, he has young children and uh, family that loves him. Uh, he's still in the ICU. I don't know where he's going to go. I don't know if he is actually going to survive. Uh, he's got certainly a lot of problems. Another patient that's not in this had a BMI of about 36, maybe 38. Um, he is in, uh, he has just recently after a very protracted, he was on ECMO for 33 days, um, and he is uh, in a rehab unit. He did have no anticoagulation strategy, had an intracranial hemorrhage, 
But nevertheless, they're not in this group because, again, now we're at 52 of them. Uh, this is just 47. But I do want to mention that patient who had a BMI of 60, uh, 62, but young, 35 years old. Average ECMO duration was 14 days. Range was 3 to 38. 33 were male, 14 were female. 24% of them were of the survivors were male. 2% of the survivors were female, one. Discussion points from my perspective. Our experience has much lower survival than other published data for COVID. And I frankly think we do a really good job with it. Notwithstanding the published exceptional cases, a BMI over 40 and COVID is devastating. We do have that one younger person, and you saw that study I showed you with a 79.6 BMI, and that was, a, again, what are we calling survivor? We have to really examine what we consider that. 80%, this is such an important point, 80% of our survivors, again, that means they went home. So 80% of the 20% of survivors that we've had in this particular group from March to March were before 2021. So the first wave, very important point. And something changed. It wasn't the virus that changed. Let me elaborate if I may. My theory, which is untested, is during the first wave, this was very novel and care was very aggressive and very rapid. Volume of cases were low, and later, mostly due to overwhelming number of patients, what we saw from the first wave to the second wave was delayed initial care, delayed transfer to the ICU from the floor, delayed intubation, and delayed ECMO decision. Longer time on vent, but I don't have that exact data of how long they were on, but I, I, they were, it was a longer period of time. Patients had, in my, my, my theory, a protracted oxygen debt and stress environment on top of the inflammatory process that was triggered by the COVID itself. So that later resulted in this sclerotic and later fibrotic lung disease and low volumes, high pressures, spontaneous pneumothoraces. Many of them were tension pneumothoraces that we had to put chest tubes in, and they became hemodynamically unstable. It was one after the other. And I'm going to show you some radiographs. Here is a patient uh, who was not a survivor. Uh, here you see a tension pneumothorax on the right side. Here's the lung. And I want you to notice something. Just look at that lung. And this happened, by the way, on both sides. We did thoracotomies on this patient. We tried to do wedges on them. We did a lot of things to try and uh, save this patient, but it was uh, to no avail. Uh, they weren't a transplant candidate, mostly due to size and uh, the renal failure. Here is another patient that developed a tension pneumothorax. And you can see this very hyper-dense lung, very high uh, 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 reflective lung. Here's your tension pneumo here. And as soon as we put a chest tube in this lady, as soon as we put it in, she popped the other side. As soon as we put it in, 
I want you to look at these radiographs together, very important. This is a non-COVID patient with a tension pneumothorax. You see the lung looks kind of like a little, like a cloud that you can see through. It's kind of fluffy. This is that patient that I just talked about. Look at the density of that lung. It almost looks like a piece of stone. And this is what's happened to these lungs. This is how it should look on this side. But look at how it looks over here. And this was one of the big problems we had. So what are our specific perfusion responsibilities? Well, I'm going to start with the yellow one first. What is our professional responsibility when dealing with a dangerous infectious disease like COVID-19 or Ebola? Um, you could pick any number of different things. Uh, uh, what's that one from Korea? Hantavirus. There's all kinds of things that we have to treat as clinicians. And I think that I'm going to start with that one first. What is cowardice versus courage? And I'm going to go a little off track here. To see the right and not to do it is cowardice. That's from Confucius. Fear has its use, but cowardice has none. That's Mahatma Gandhi. The definition of courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. And if you look at that red circle, I won't get into the details of what this is, but there was a school shooting in Florida. In the circle is the school resource police officer who was there to protect everyone there. He is hiding behind a building while the shooting is going on around that corner in a different section of the building versus running towards it. As medical professionals, and I had this happen very early on, John, I'm kind of curious if you saw this at all. I had some people say, I'm in a high risk category. I, I can't take care of COVID patients. No, it doesn't work that way. When you decided to get into healthcare, and you decide this is what you want to do, and you enjoy the recognition that you get from society for being in healthcare at the level that we are in healthcare, you don't get to say, oh no, I can't take care of those patients. That is your responsibility. And so I want to point that out, John, maybe you can uh, uh, talk about that for just a moment. Did you have any of that occur? Because I did. I have one friend of mine. Um, you know, I won't. I won't specify the, the field of practice that they're in, or anything else for uh, from uh, you know for obscurity. But um, in the midst of all this COVID uh, frenzy, about four to five months in, I was uh, texting him, trying to find out you know how things are going, what are you guys seeing, and all that kind of thing. I even was inquiring about if he could come down and help us with the overwhelming we had. But at any rate, uh, had, had just um, <clears throat> was um, informed by his doctor that he was pre-diabetic, that his glucoses were running a little high. He wasn't diabetic, but he was pre-diabetic, needed to make some changes to his diet, maybe needed exercise, wasn't going to go on any you know, treatment for it or anything like that. But in the process of COVID being only three, four, five months old, as you recall, the hysteria was, you know, pretty, pretty off the charts with what are we dealing with here, was told by the same physician, you're now, you know, you're in a high risk category now. And uh, I would, I would, I would say, you know, be cautious about working around COVID patients. So he, he pulled back 
you know, he, he let us know that uh, he wasn't going to be able to come down and help us out and, and things like that. So um, that's, the, that's the only one that I, uh, that I had direct, you know, experience with. Well, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, our response, my response was you don't get a choice and you either have to take care of the patients or you just simply don't have a job. It's as simple as that. I think that I'm in a high-risk category. I was scared, but you, uh, you, we don't have a choice. You're in a high-risk category, just based on our age. So I think that was something that uh, I wanted to point out because this isn't the only time we're going to see this. And I wanted to give this message to people that when you're dealing with something that frightens you, as Mahatma Gandhi said, fear is useful, but cowardice is not. You have, to be, you have to be able to overcome your fear and do the right thing and take care of these patients because they need us. And that's it. That's what our, that is what we signed up for. We're volunteers. Okay. What is the specific role of perfusion? And John, I really want your input on this. But clearly, the equipment, the circuit, simplicity versus versatility, safety and CVVH, and adding things to it, adding volume, adding trans, you know, blood, whatever it may be. Visibility, you gotta be able to see it. Flow, all the things we do as perfusions. Charting, uh, volume, or shattering rather, and adding volume, cannula protection, turning the patient, cleaning the insertion site, measuring effectiveness, recirculation, like with the ELSA meter, maximizing uh, for lung protection uh, vent strategies to be able to protect the lungs. That's what we're there for, right? And providing, you know, an oxygen-rich environment for the patient to perfuse themselves. Anticoagulation, monitoring and measuring that, making sure we're not clotting things or we're not bleeding, temperature management. Um, because, you know, we can mask a lot of infections. We can mask uh, a fever with our heater coolers. you got to be thinking about that, remember that. Consulting with the physicians, doing neuroassessments, perfusion assessments, and of course laboratory values, and making sure that you're keeping a uh, a, uh, a good homeostasis. What else is the role of perfusion? Well, helping turn the patients and clean them because you want their bowels to work, and if their bowels are working and they aren't don't have a rectal tube in because they don't have diarrhea, liquid stools they're going to need to be cleaned, and rectal tubes will leak as well. Um, but, you know, these nurses are working hard, and if you got to get in there and help them clean them, get in there and help them clean and help turn the patient. I think that is part of our role, not just sitting there and saying, I'm just monitoring the ECMO, that's all I'm doing. Um, changing bags on the CRRT machine, if they're busy, why not? You know, help them out. Giving transfusions and volumes as needed through your circuit. Basically, anything to help the team, but based at the end of the day, especially the patient. That's what we are there for. Um, how should the physicians, perfusionists, and nurses consult with one another? That's a great question. And uh, Dr. Go and his colleagues from uh, Singapore did a study on the impact of an, extra, an ECMO intensivist-led multidisciplinary team on VV ECMO outcomes and he found, or they found, published in Critical Care Explorations, and they found uh, that an ECMO intensivist-led multidisciplinary team approach is associated with improved outcomes in patients initiated on BV ECMO 
for severe acute respiratory failure. And I think this is very important. We won't go over it too much because I kind of am running out of time, but basically they're in hospital mortality, ICU mortality, ICU length of stay, and nosocomial infection rates, all statistically better with an intensivist led, or and it, it, the fact that it's intensivist versus somebody else, a pulmonologist or cardiac surgeon, I don't, it doesn't really matter. Somebody is the leader of the ECMO patient. I think really the point here is that they have a multidisciplinary team with someone who is actually in charge of all of the patients, not, well, that one's mine. I just put the cannula in that one. Uh, this one here I'm actually taking care of, and I don't know who's taking care of that one. Oh, that's the pulmonology, and that's intensive care, and that's somebody else. There's one person or one group that is actually managing all of the multi-interdisciplinary care of the patient. I think that's what the takeaway is. Here's just a diagram of what I just said, the blue being pre-team, the orange being post-activation uh, 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 or uh, uh, initiation of their team approach. And they have some interesting, I think, comments from this uh, that in January of 2018, there was a dedicated ECMO specialist team, ECMO care team, as they call it which was led by a group of ECMO intensivists with accreditation in critical care medicine and fellowship training in an established ECMO center or completed an ECMO training course with at least one year of experience on an ECMO team. Assessment of patient suitability for VV ECMO was a joint team decision rather than an individual one. And other members of the team consisted of other intensivists, CV surgeons or CT surgeons, perfusionists, specialized ECMO ICU nurses, I think that's very important, respiratory therapists, I think that's very important, pharmacists, that would be clinical, uh, that would be uh, intensive care clinical pharmacists, these people are extremely bright, uh, continue to provide, that's their team, and that's how you should be delivering ECMO, not just hit and miss, or who's, taking, who's making these decisions, and you have four or five different services all disagreeing on what to do with the patient. You need one group of people who work cohesively together and everything filtering down and th up through them before it's actually done to the patient. That's my opinion. And so here we go on how you should wear a mask now that we're finally getting rid of a mask and the green check apparently being the appropriate way. Uh, the bottom left is anesthesia. Uh, I think the one on the top right is perfusion. Um, and I just, you know, all the rest of them, you could pick a discipline for them uh, however you would like. But thank you very much. I appreciate your time listening to me. I know that was a long, laborious presentation with a lot of information, but the phone lines are open if anyone wants to call because you could win a t-shirt, a ball cap, a surgical cap, something like that if you'd like to. I won't spin the wheel if nobody calls, so nobody's winning anything if nobody calls. And John, you're ineligible, so there you go. So uh, so anyway, so what did you think, John? Did I, do a, did I do this topic justice, or is there any other comments that you have, or or, or, or uh, uh, something you'd like to clarify from my uh, statements?
you, you, you did a great job. That's some, I, I don't know where you found all those uh, great slides. So many of them I haven't seen. I, I don't want to harp on the ELSA thing too much, but I made a couple notes here. You know when you talked about, it goes uh, a dozen or two dozen slides back, and it said something about that they, you know, that they're recommending maximum uh, support strategy, mm -hmm. to do the maximum support strategy, but they left out three words, for how long? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, they have to think about the mm -hmm. words that they're using. Mm -hmm. These words, and you said also, when that one part a few slides later, where they're talking about, you know, eCPR should not be offered. Well, maybe eCPR should not be aggressively offered. They don't just consume all your equipment, but we have to do eCPR because we have patients on the bubble. We're trying proning, we're trying everything we can. They suddenly jump off that bubble and go downhill. They're ready for ECMO if that one little leg drops worse, and we run in there with eCPR. So you can't say it's not offered, like, period. I mean, if you're going to be an ECMO center, uh, then, you know, they're trying to tell people who are new centers, don't mm -hmm. go crazy putting everybody on ECMO. Mm -hmm. Try to conserve your equipment for the younger, the ones that have more, more opportunity to, to mm -hmm. heal. Mm -hmm. But your experienced centers, I don't know if some of that even applies because we already have management of what we know we're going to do with what patients when. Mm -hmm. You follow what I mean? So that was the L. So they have to be careful with their words and who's reading that. Yes, I totally agree with you. Well, I think you just brought up two very good, very good points. First of all, notwithstanding COVID is certainly did stress our system here in Houston. It stressed us a tremendous amount. Um, and we were operating not only on expanded capacity, but we were at capacity limits a number of times during this period of, of this year. Um, and a 44-year-old, 42-year-old hits your ER with a, an acute occlusion of their big LAD, and uh, they're in cardiogenic shock, and they can't get them stable in order to be able to open that up with balloon angioplasty and a stent, or maybe even you know the need for cardiac surgery. I don't think you just say, no, we can't offer it to you because uh, here was an ECMO circuit and we have it, but you know, ELSO says we really shouldn't offer this right now. I think that's absurd. It's absurd. Um, the second point that you brought up that I think is, is very important um, is uh, the, the, uh, the time that he clearly earlier time, and, and I, I, my theory is untested, but I really, I, I believe in it. I'm really curious to see what the histology of these explanted lungs from, hopefully they've done them, or wedge resections that have been done, or lobectomies that have been done on these patients that have COVID that have these real stiff lungs, or these transplants that's been done for patients, what the alveolar capillary membrane actually looks like, what actually is happening there. Because I am convinced it is a double prong, a two-pronged inflammatory response. The first one from the actual virus itself, and the second one from this oxygen debt stress environment of not being able to breathe that just abs that goes in there and just destroys the lung with gross infiltration of leukocytes and then thickening sclerotic 
changes and then later converting to uh, fibrotic and uh, uh, lung uh, irreversible fibrotic changes of the lung. That's what I believe is happening. Well, we saw a uh, lung transplant from a COVID uh, patient who, who had just absolutely terrible lungs after the bout of COVID and, and ended up getting a lung transplant. So we were able to see the COVID lungs and they're unrecognizable. They're unrecognizable. Well, let me, can I show you something? Yeah. Yeah, show me Can you um, uh, uh, give me one second? I'm gonna I'm gonna mirror my phone, but don't switch it over until because I need to make sure that I don't violate any uh, any um, uh, HIPAA things or. And see. while you're doing that, I'll just comment on the other okay. slide you showed that had the, uh, you know, survivability that, that you said post I think 2020 tw and 2021 you had eight male survivors at 20 at. Um, what was it, 9% or something, and then one female yeah. survivor. Yes. And uh, I don't know if there's enough numbers there. You did you did quite a few. You did 47 in your, in your study, all COVID, ECMO. Yes. And, um, yeah, just COVID. I don't, Our non-COVID yeah. ECMOs, much better outcomes because yeah, we had yeah. several. Uh, now, they did the, the great. Other I, the other thing I would comment, too, and I think you made a very good point. This is what I think happened on, you said the virus didn't change. I can tell you what did change, whether the virus did or not. I'm not an expert, but I can tell you what did change. COVID hit, and if you had COVID, you know, all doors flung open to you. Mm -hmm. We need to see you. We need to come into ER. We need to treat you. That, so it basically it started to sprinkle. Then it started to rain hard. Then it started to hail. Then it started to hail hard. What I mean by that is the hospitals had patients everywhere. So when you called with COVID, now the onslaught was protect us from the storm us as being overwhelmed so the first i know people that came down with covid it was you just you didn't move out of your house you get a phone call and they told you stay home don't come in don't, don't you know everything was about pushing the patient off because we're overwhelmed correct and, and you don't come into the er do this mm -hmm. this this and the other thing mm -hmm. um i i know people didn't even get a prescription they were mm -hmm. the doctor just said stay home do a certain things you know let me know how you do it in a few days until you got hypoxic were you allowed to even come to the ER? Yeah, yeah. They told you to get a pulse ox. You know, and that's another very good point. Um, and that's true. And I had pointed that out, delayed care. That is absolutely, I think, a tremendous contributor to this versus in the early days when you just got fast-tracked. There was right. no delay. But I also think we are not blunting the inflammatory process. And I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say the names of them because I don't need YouTube to be doing anything here. But, you know, some of the anti-parasitic drugs that, no, it doesn't work. Other people are saying, absolutely, it does work. Um, you know, the uh, dexamethasone, are we using that aggressively enough? You know, in the early days, it was don't use steroids. Now it's, no, we're not using enough steroids. Uh, you know, I don't think we're treating their inflammatory process aggressively enough. But I think that the, when you say hypoxic, it's to what level of hypoxemia. So if you're running at a low sat, like you're trying to walk around on a, 15,000 foot mountain and you're struggling, 
and your lungs are getting wet and stiff, that in itself, there's going to be anxiety. You're putting the patient, not, not from that alone, but obviously that's a contributor, but all of that stress of anxiety and hypoxia and hypercapnia and all of those things, not being able to eat, not being able to drink, not all of that is going to severely affect your, um, your uh, uh, inflammatory response. And it's going to exacerbate an already existing inflammatory process just from the COVID itself. So let me show you these lungs. This is what COVID lungs look like. Do I need to share it again? No, thanks. That's what COVID, can you make it big or is that as big as it gets? It looks like a liver, no? It does. Is that, is that as big as it gets? Oh, no, there you go. Oh, that's good. That's nice. I like that. And here's another I view. You uh, don't have a picture of normal lungs. I do. Next, but it, it wouldn't look anything I, like that. I do. Okay, good. Just not next to it because I'm on my phone. But yeah. these are explanted lungs from a 20 six-year-old young man. Yeah, I bet that weighs uh, many, many times heavier than, than what it should. Sure. It's dense. It's, it's and this thick. is, these are his new lungs. Yeah, exactly. That were delivered. See, they're unrecognizable. And that's here's right. another view of, his a little more close-up of his new lungs. I mean, that's a beautiful organ. That's a, that is what it's supposed to look like. And this, going back to it again, is what the explanted lungs on a 26-year-old look like. And uh, I think I can just quickly, let me see if I can do this. Um, here, can you take that, can you uh, take that away for just one second so I can, okay, thanks. Let me see if I can do this. Here, just give me one second, I'm sorry. But I wanna make sure that I uh, pick the right picture. Hold on. Well, Joe, I think it'd be interesting if in another six, nine months or so, you, you continue to add your COVID uh, numbers to this preliminary 47, uh, you know, continue to collect the data and, and we reconvene, you know, later this year and see if your numbers, what, what your numbers are. And uh, it'd be interesting to, sex, to keep dissecting out 2021 from 2020 numbers mm -hmm. too. So uh, you know here's, I mean? here's this young man. Yeah, I, I agree. Here's this young man going home. Mm -hmm. and uh, no oxygen. He does, you know, of course, reads the plaque, rings the bell and uh, from the transplant center, but uh, you could see how skinny he is. Mm -hmm. So could you imagine, this kid's 26 years old. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine what this does to a 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 55-year-old, 37-year-old who wasn't, and this kid was young and in good shape. And you can mm -hmm. just see yourself what uh, ECMO at a hospital, transfer from there after several uh, days or actually a couple of weeks on ECMO to the transplant hospital, to the, to the uh, quaternary care facility in the med center. Um, he ended up on a second ECMO circuit. Uh, so two ECMO circuits, because he's a young kid, 26 years old, high metabolism and to get him to where they actually uh, moved him while he was, you could take the picture down, thanks man, 
Um, they actually uh, ambulated him on two ECBO, a double ECBO circuit, like you were talking, VVVV. And um, uh, he uh, conditioned himself enough to, uh, to go ahead and get the transplant. But I'm very curious to see what those, uh, what those lungs, what the uh, 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 necroscopy and also the, the histolo histological findings of those lungs ends up being. Yeah, I think that um, my, my, my thought here, if, if we, from a medical standpoint, and, and a, uh, if, we, if we could flash forward 10 years or, or maybe longer in the future, I think this is going to be a lesson, a lesson in inflammatory responses and what we need to open a whole frontier of treatment on, on subduing these inflammatory responses far greater than what we're doing now, which is almost none, almost nothing. Actually, Specifically right? for the lung. So is it yeah, well, unfractionated? Right. Is it nebulized unfractionated heparin? Is it nebulized surfactant? Is it dexamethasone? Is it the antiparasitics, you know, that, that, that were discussed, you know, earlier on and one a little bit later? I don't know. I don't know the, I don't, I certainly don't know the answer. What I do know is that what we're doing is marginally effective. Yeah, you save um, one, okay, that's important. That person, it matters. But how many didn't we save that we could have saved? And is that because of selection? Is that because of lack of appropriate treatment or lack of understood best treatment? Um, you know, not certainly on purpose. And then, of course, the other thing that I worry about is the number of new ECMO systems you brought. You actually did a great lecture on this very topic. Um, and uh, in one, I think it was one of your knowledge nuggets, if I remember. No, it wasn't. It was just a lecture. I don't remember exactly how it came up. But you talked about a whole bunch of different circuits that were out there. And, um, you know, it's uh, worrisome to me that, you know, hospitals are, oh, we just have to have an ECMO circuit and we're just going to do this. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, concerning me. Um, and, uh, uh, it's something that I think industry is contributing to in a negative way. Um, you know, they did the same thing with the Impella, for example, we need to get it in everywhere. Um, and really it just doesn't need to be everywhere. I think that, uh, you need to be able to get those patients, um, someplace else. I don't necessarily believe in centralization. But I do believe in regional centralization, if you will. So if you have this region, you should have one center that does this because it's so invasive, so multidisciplinary, requires so many resources and skill that if you have too many doing few, it's kind of like transplants. You can't just open a transplant program up because you want to open a transplant program up. You're not allowed to do that because you have to have the volume to uh, be able to be good at it. And uh, I think we should be doing the same thing with uh, ECMO. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the inflammatory response of the disease. It's the body's inflammatory response, you know, to the disease. But then we add ECMO, which is a whole other gigantic inflammatory response on top of the original inflammatory response. You add hypoxemia, either pre going on ECMO, which is what led them to be on ECMO. You might even still have hypoxemia on ECMO. So mm -hmm. now, you know, you have 
the inflammatory response of the body's own inflammatory response to the disease, for whatever reason, this is what this COVID virus is doing. Then the ECMO comes in, another, you know, drop another gasoline on that fire. Then you have, um, you know, uh, the hypoxemia, which, what is that doing? There's probably tremendous body response to that. And, and most of this is focused on the lung, but there's also multi-organ uh, inflammatory damage that's going on. And uh, that's why I was saying earlier, I think if there is a field of research that we can say in a state of inflammatory response, even if it's a minor or major one, you know, what can be the new, uh, what can be the new avenue of science and medical research that says we need to do A, B, C, D and squelch inflammatory responses 70, 80% in any, in any situation. And I think that we would probably see tremendous improvement in, in what, and what's happening with COVID and, and of course, COVID ECMO. Yeah, but I do think it has to be spe somewhat specific because obviously you can't just completely immunosuppress someone because you'll have all these other problems that are going to happen. So you have to be able to target what you're trying to target. And I think that's going to end up being an inhalation uh, uh, treatment versus a systemic treatment or a combination of both. Um, that's well, potentially... Yeah, I was also referring to, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the elimination of or the removal of, you know, far more effective removal of the inflammatory yes. response. I don't like, think you, uh, some, you can't really immunosuppress these people. They're running so many risks to infection as it is. I mean, we have infection risks left and right. I don't know what would happen. Mm -hmm. if, so I, I'm more talking about something that doesn't even, you know, I, I'm talking about an unknown. But I, like I said, 10, 20 years from now, if we can have a, whether it's a CRT device or something completely different. Well, like the really Cytosorb, you know, they have the Cytosorb. Yeah, they have um, it. They have other, you know, other molecular adsorption technologies. So, how, you know. How much is that reducing the inflammatory response COVID ECMO patient? 5%, 10%? I don't know. Even, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I did one the other day. We had that on there. And I had people tell me, oh, it's, it's doing tremendous. And I had another CCM say, I don't think it's made any difference at all. So mm -hmm. I, I really, I have to research that myself. I, I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't, have an, I don't have any experience with it. It seems to make sense. I understand it, uh, but I haven't, I've never used it. So I just, just simply don't know. Okay, um, John, without any uh, further, if you, if you have anything else, if not, I'm going to close out with, uh, with telling everybody PerfWeb 61, which is going to be the VUMC, that's Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Department of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Surgery. Uh, faculty forum will be Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021, at, uh, starting at 6.45 a.m. or 7 to 8.30, and it's going to be VADS Part 2, which is going to be Dr. Jordan Hoffman. Uh, he'll be joined by Matt Warhoover, perfusionist, the associate director of the program, and also uh, Tony Lapore, a perfusionist, uh, really incredible uh, guys. These are very, 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 very experienced VAD and ECMO folks. Um, they're going to be talking about VADs. Dr. Hoffman's lecture is going to last about an hour and a half, so I think it's going to be very comprehensive, followed by Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club, uh, which is going to be lower versus higher oxygen targets for acute hypoxic respiratory failure. I think that's going to be very interesting. And then John is going to be rounding that day out with his knowledge nuggets, 
That's going to be 9.30 to 10, and it's going to be on atrial septal defects. So, and this is approved for this whole day. Of course, it starts at 7 and ends at 10, so it's approved for 3.4, Category 1, CEU by the ABCP. So, listen, we're providing you with more than enough opportunities to get all of your CEUs for uh, your ABCP recertification. So, very affordable. Uh, hope you check us out and do it. But, John, uh, thank you so much for bailing me out today and helping me. Uh, your, your insights are, are, are were very well thought out and coming from very experienced eyes, and we appreciate that a great deal. And we'll look forward to seeing you uh, Wednesday, June 2nd. Good luck on your house adventure in uh, Key West. I only wish I was, uh, you know, a, 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 an ECMO center perfusionist and could afford a house in Key West, but I can't. Um, so I appreciate that very much. And hopefully I'll get an invitation to come out and visit you, and we will do a program from there one day. That would certainly be a lot of fun for me. They're building a brand new Margaritaville Resort, Joe. Perfect for you. You would love outstanding, it. Outstanding. Outstanding. I'll take the tequila without the uh, without the uh, uh, sugary stuff. So I'm just more than happy with just straight tequila.